really is a privilege to study God's word holistically. Now, I know we love the New Testament and some quick little things on forgiveness and how to be a better parent, make better decisions, but I'm telling you, man, when you are patient and see what God has to say holistically throughout scripture, you will be blown away by how all of it helps us to know God better. Um, now, I'm going to remind you of something. I, I might date myself a little bit, but in July of 2010, an unprecedented thing happened. Um, a young man who was a basketball player got on TV to make what we call the decision. Now, for some of us who were born in 2010, you might not remember that, but LeBron James got on ESPN. This is not a debate about LeBron and Michael, so just <laughs> calm your hearts. Calm your hearts. It's like sugar grits and salt and pepper. People just get so worked up over that. It's okay. Uh, in heaven, it won't matter. That's what we're talking about today. So in 2010, a young LeBron James got on TV to talk about a decision he was making in his basketball career. Now, this was unprecedented. He gets on TV. He'd been drafted by the Cleveland, Cleveland Cavaliers, if you're a basketball fan. And he had played with them a few years. And he said to the whole world, the watching world, I've decided to take my talents to South Beach. Yes. So he had decided to go to Miami because he was going to be a part of what became known as the big three. And that was going to be LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. Their goal was to say, you know what? We can create a championship team. If the three of us decide to join the same team, then we want to win rings. Okay? Now, whether you disagree or not, it changed everything. All the purists and the real basketball fans, they didn't like that. They wanted the loyalty that had been in the sport during the 70s and 80s and 90s where you just stayed with your team for years and years and years. And maybe you were part of the dynasty, but if you weren't playing for the Lakers, Lakers or the Celtics, I don't know what you were doing. Then the Bulls in the 90s. You know, so if you, okay, all right. <laughs> we're just going to clap for Jesus today. All right. So. <laughs> So it changed everything because now players were taking control of their careers. And they were saying, instead of waiting on these long contracts and playing with these kind of sorry teams and not knowing how it was going to work out and being locked in, we're going to decide where we go. And so what you started to see was kind of this exodus. Players were starting to move and kind of form these superpowers that they thought would win them championship rings. Agents hated it. Well, agents loved it. They got money. But the commissioner hated it, the sports people hated it, but it, the players loved it. You even had seasoned basketball players who had never won rings choose to be on teams knowing they would sit on the bench, knowing they wouldn't even play with hopes of winning a championship ring. They were willing to say, I don't need any playing time. I sit on the bench, but at the end of it all, I want the hardware. Y'all, people were altering their careers. They were willing to take less money. They were doing whatever. So year-round, you had all this talk about where all these players were going to go. And when I think about how much effort they put into this, it dawned on me. I said, I know y'all want them to stay loyal to their team. But here, here's the point. At the end of the day, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to win. Everybody says, what can I do to get on the winning side? They want to find ways to be champions. And here is what is true for us as Christians, that if we are found in Christ Jesus at the rapture and at his second coming, you're on the winning side. You don't have to rearrange anything. You don't have to form any new alliances. 
You don't have to give up your gifts to try to sit in the shadows. Jesus says, only with me will you be champions. Only with me. And so everything that you're doing in this world and in this life to try to arrange some kind of victory, even if it works out, it's only going to work for a little while. Eventually, the only real victory will belong to Jesus. That's, that's the end of it all. The revelation of John gives us all of these graphic, vivid images. Sometimes we can't keep up with it. I know y'all are like, it's trumpets and bowls and plagues and it's a lot of things happening. But at the end of it all, Jesus wins. And that's the point of it all. And so what we're going to do for our time this morning is talk a little bit about what it's looking like as it's getting near the end. Y'all, if this was a movie, the music would be changing right about now. You know that part where you're like, oh, oh, y'all thought the hero had lost. You just feel like it's about to take a turn. It's been so many things, some confusion, and you're like, I'm not sure. I got about 10 plot lines. I'm trying to figure out who so-and-so is. It's about to all come together. It's about to culminate into the end of the movie. We're almost there. The tension is building. And so stay with us. We're going to read Revelation uh, 19 and 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. I will not make y'all read all of both chapters. We're going to stand up and just read the first five verses of Revelation 19 and then get started. Is that all right? Revelation 19, 1 through 5. And we're going to group these in some sections so you can track with the passage. The first section is called the Fall of Babylon. So let's read those first verses of Revelation 19, 1 through 5. All right, y'all ready? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Okay, before you say this, this is a shout. This is not like a hallelujah. It's not that. This is a shout, loud multitude, voice crying out. Y'all ready to shout it? All right. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, here's a note about this scripture. It's a song that many of you probably love, and it's called Revelation 19. And it's based off this verse. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Hallelujah. Hey. That's what I'm talking about. Honor. Uh. Honor and power to the Lord. There you go. Okay, y'all going to break out in parts. Hold on. That's all we need. We like, oh, pray. Mm-mm. So. That's, that's where that's coming from. You'd be surprised how many songs are about the second coming. Okay, verse 2. Here we go. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 3. Once more they cried out. Wait, y'all ready? Okay. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, shout it out, amen, hallelujah. All right. Verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, y'all ready? It's the last shout. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Hallelujah for the reading of the word of God. So these first five verses in chapter 19 are really called the fall of Babylon. What is happening? John hears this great multitude of voices, right? 
This is the raptured saints, those of us who have chosen Jesus already. When God comes back from the rapture, we're going to be taken up into heaven. We're going to be on choir duty until Jesus brings it all to fruition at the end. So it's that multitude, but it's also the saints who chose Jesus during the tribulation. Now, y'all, the tribulation is no joke. This is after the rapture and all that wrath and all those bowls and all that's being poured out. There are still people who had an opportunity to come to Christ. So those saints who said yes to Jesus when it was the harshest of conditions, they are a part of this multitude. So we got the new saints, we got the old saints. This is unity choir. This is mass choir. This is not like a reflective, you know, hmm. I got, mm -mm. They are shouting that our God is worthy of praise. Salvation and power and glory belong to our God. Why? Not just because he's a good God, but he's a promise-keeping God. Because in Revelation 6, these saints who had chosen Jesus during the tribulation, they cried out and they said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? Jesus, we've said yes to you. We know we should have said yes before the rapture. But we've said yes to you in this time of tribulation. When will you avenge us? And he says, when the number of those that are affiliated with you die, when that number has come, and that's completed because Jesus, God has a set time for everything. He's like, the time is coming. I promise you, I'm going to avenge you. So now they look up and they see the fall of Babylon, their oppressor, the fall of the great prostitute, the one who was inviting them into indulgence and immorality and perversion, which, by the way, they, their perspective had changed on that. Because the prostitute in Babylon had been there for the whole tribulation. But guess what happens? When you say yes to Jesus, all of a sudden, the thing that made you feel good, you want it to fall now. Because they were like, wait a minute. We thought that was good, but we want the destruction of this thing. It's not for us. It's not for God. And so they're rejoicing now because God has come through. This is like, I, I wish I could really express to you, but John is using these words like seems like and sounds like and this voice and this great multitude. It is, it is like... When I was reading this, and I was like, God, what, what could that feel like? This culmination of worship and praise and honor that you are beginning to claim the victory. He said, I want you to think about some things that have happened in your personal life recently. I have a friend, y'all, who after nine years of infertility has just conceived. Yeah. I have another friend who after 20 years of marriage and five kids and three careers got her bachelor's degree. She walked that stage, and listen, we all walked that stage. I have a friend who this year rung that bell after 18 rounds of chemo. Now, here's the test. God said, I want you to take every bit of good news you've ever had in your life, every miracle, every time I've shown up, every time something was praiseworthy, I want you to take that, multiply that exponentially, and that will be a taste of how you will worship me in heaven. That will be a taste. You see how easy it is for the, us to clap up when God is doing good things. Y'all, those good things are going to go away with the earth. What lasts forever is hallelujah, salvation, and power belong to our God. He's saying there's not any good thing you've experienced on earth that will compare to how you respond when I come back to reign. This is like worship. It don't matter about your denomination. It don't matter about your personality. You will be overcome with the power and the goodness and the honor and the authority and the dominion that is due the name of God. 
It won't be limited to a service or 18 minutes or whatever's on your playlist. It will be round-the-clock worship. Because all you'll have to do is think about your conquering king, your mighty God, your everlasting father, the goodness and mercy that will lavish us for eternity. So they are filled with worship. And John says, wait, that's not it. They're celebrating the fall of Babylon, but there's more. Y'all say there's more. In verses 6 through 10, we see the presentation of the bride. So in the first five verses, we saw the fall of Babylon. And there's little charts so y'all can keep up with these sections. The second one is the presentation of the bride. Now, y'all, this is some good stuff right here. I'm going to read 6 through 10 for you. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I love this, y'all, because John has this vision but he still don't even have all the words for what he's trying to describe. We don't know exactly what it's going to be because he uses like 30 similes in our, throughout the scripture. It's like sounds like, seems like. I mean, roaring waters is the closest thing I can come up with. Peals of thunder is all I got because God is doing stuff that's beyond his vocabulary. He, he's, he's giving John a vision that he don't even really fully have the words for. So he's trying his best to describe it. And again... <clears throat> we see hallelujah again for the fourth time. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now here's an interesting note about that. The word hallelujah shows up several times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's only four times in the entire New Testament. And all four of them are right here. God says, listen, we're going we gonna to put that on hold. I'm going to wait until it's really time for the saints to shout hallelujah. It's going to be at the end of time when they see the final victory coming. When they realize that the marriage supper is at hand. Hallelujah for the Lord God, Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And in verse 7, says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. So y'all, the marriage supper, this is the good part. John is saying we are finally seeing the great feast that Jesus has been promising us. And the bride has made herself ready. So here's what's happening. You have this, this marriage supper where God, Jesus has all the saints at the table. These are the people who have chosen salvation and followed him accordingly. You have this image, is a metaphor of a traditional Jewish marriage. Traditional Jewish marriage had three major phases. The first phase, the marriage contract was signed. This was between the parents of the bride and the bridegroom. Arranged marriage, which honestly, we might reconsider because the way we pick in our own is, you know, arranged marriage is not all bad. They last. So you had arranged marriage. Parents of the bride, parents of the bridegroom, they would sign a contract. Then the father of the bridegroom, the man, or the bridegroom himself would pay the dowry, would pay the cost for marrying this bride. Now, y'all understand that the first phase of the marriage has already happened. That is when believers say yes to Jesus. Because now, not only do we have the father of the bridegroom, God the father, we have the bridegroom himself paying the cost. The father paid by sending his son. The son paid by dying on a cross. So we got double payment. Yeah. He is coming to say, you are the bride that I have chosen. The contract is signed when you say yes to Jesus. 
It's not when you show up here on Sunday. It's when you surrender your life to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about some of these organizations that's like, call us and we'll fix your credit and we'll take care of any outstanding payments. And you think you're taking care of it and then you go try to make a purchase 10 years from now, it's still on your credit score. Listed as something else. You're like, this wasn't paid for. This was just deferred. This was just renamed. Jesus said, when I pay your debt, it's not going to show up. When you get to the end of time and God runs your spiritual credit score, anything before me is wiped out. He says, I pay debt and I pay it completely. And that contract is only taken into effect by grace and faith. You must decide, will I enter the contract? The father of the bridegroom and the bridegroom are ready. They're ready to cover your cost. But this is what is happening here. So for the first phase of the marriage, for every believer, we're already under contract. The second phase of the marriage was called the betrothal. I mean, the second phase of the marriage is when the bridegroom went to see the bride. This was actually when they kind of got married, what you'd call the ceremony. Now, if you understand the parable of the ten uh, maidens with their lamps in Matthew 25, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus talks about this in the book of Matthew, and he says, if you, he's talking to these ten virgins, the kingdom of heaven is like, as, like these ten maidens who have their lamps waiting on the bridegroom. Because the bride kind of knew when the bridegroom was coming, but she didn't know exactly. So she had to stay ready. Once the contract was signed, all the way until the bridegroom showed up, which could have been years, she had to stay ready. She had to stay faithful. So Jesus is saying, what you're in right now is your time of faithfulness. You don't know when I'm coming back. This second phase of the bridegroom showing up actually will be the rapture when Jesus comes back. But he's saying, in the meantime, church, bride, will you stay ready? Will you stay faithful? Because the bridegroom may show up at any time. And the bride is supposed to remain ready. This is what uh, Conway and I did this, y'all, when we got married. 20. Listen, more than 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, 24. So it'll be 23 next year in March. And so it don't matter. We still married. Like, <laughs> taking that to heaven. So it's fine. Um, so when we got married, trying to be extra godly, uh, we actually did like a model of Revelation 19. And so my dad walked me up the aisle first, and I was there. And then, you know, we had a little song and music and all that stuff. And then Conway came in after me. And then we had our pastor, the illustrious Tony Evans. Uh, preached the house down about Revelation 19. And he gave a gospel call. Y'all know we had the altar call at our wedding, a whole gospel call. And so we did that because we were trying to give a picture of what it was like for the bride to remain ready and waiting. So now in Western culture, we've kind of made weddings about the bride, like everything's about the bride, 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 and everybody kind of caters to her and she walks in and it's a whole thing. That's not really the marriage metaphor that was created with the original intent of marriage. It was a bride, once she had been selected by her bridegroom, then she was under contract basically to stay faithful until he appeared. Now, he was off working, preparing, doing all these things, and then he would come back for her. But that's why the Lord says in this parable, he said, you gotta be ready because you don't know when the bridegroom is gonna come back. Five of those 10 maidens in that parable, they ran out of oil because they didn't come prepared. So when the bridegroom showed up, they couldn't participate in the celebration. And he's saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When you read through the gospels, anytime you see Jesus talk about, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like, he's talking about this. There's more scripture about the second coming than there is about almost any other subject in scripture. And so he's talking about this preparation, being ready. How does the bride make herself ready? And that takes us to the third phase, the marriage supper itself. 
So after the bridegroom has come for his bride, it says the marriage supper, y'all, could go on for days. It, it, it was just celebration. I have some uh, Nigerian friends, and y'all, I went to a Nigerian wedding a couple of years ago. Any Nigerians in the room? Y'all know. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. You know how long those weddings are. You know, and I went, and I wasn't ready. I needed an outfit change, a second pair of shoes, a nap. I needed a lot of things because they were not playing around. It was like multiple phases to this celebration, and it was amazing. We were tired, but everybody had a good time. You were not going to forget that somebody got married today, right? So that's like a glimpse because this marriage feast that Jesus is talking about, we don't know how long it's going to last, but he's got all the saints coming back to the table. And he's saying, for those of you who have done phase one, you've chosen me. Phase two, you came with me in the rapture. Now it's time for the marriage supper. I want you to sit at the table with me. Every promise that I've made to you about satisfaction. And in John 7, when he says, I'm going to give you living water flowing from the inside, you'll always be satisfied. When he tells the woman at the well in John 4, if you drink from what I give you, you'll never be thirsty. When he says, if you have the bread of life, you're always satisfied. That satisfaction is what's showing up here at the marriage supper. He's got everybody at the table. He's saying, let's celebrate, let's feast. This is what we've been waiting on. Y'all, but here's what's interesting. It says the righteous linens are the righteous deeds of the saints. Y'all say deeds. Now, everybody that chooses Jesus, gets saved, accepts the gospel, they're going to be at the marriage supper. But everybody's not going to have on the same thing. And what he's saying is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment happens before this. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. So there is salvation. There's choosing Jesus for eternity. But then it's how you live after you're saved. It matters. He's saying there is a righteousness that I'm going to give you. But then there's also a righteousness that reflects how you lived for me after you said yes to me. Now, some of us, I'm sure, going to be at the table with a whole 10-piece outfit. Everything, because we were trying to do our best, not perfection, but just a constant pursuit of God's holiness. Some of us are going to be at the table maybe just like a little bracelet, a little charm or something. No linens. You in, but heaven's gate is like, I mean, you, whoop. <laughs> you, you just in. You're like, I'm at the table. I'm at the end, but just pass me a plate, right? It's okay, because heaven is the goal. But I need you to understand that the way we reign with Christ will be reflective of our righteousness that we lived after Christ. So there's still going to be benefits and privileges for living for him, not abusing his grace, saying yes to holiness, yes to righteousness, the hard way he asks us to love. Because listen, 2 Corinthians says everything you do for God, he's going to set a fire to it, and whatever survives the fire, that's what you get credit for. So he said, when you show up and gave $50 to so-and-so, but really you gave it because you wanted them to know you had it to give, and <laughs> I'm just, you're not helping really, that's going to burn. You're not going to get credit for that. So when you show up to serve just because you want to be important, and you're like, uh, put my name on here because do you know my experience, my expertise, he'd be like, <laughs> that's not going to burn. But when you tithe and you barely making any money yourself and you get that $10 out of that 20 that you had because that's all you had, but you gave it with the right heart, God is like, that's going to last. That's going to last. You got five bedrooms and three are empty, but nobody can ever stay with you. That's going to burn. You know, you got that extra, but you don't ever ask God what to do with it. So instead of generosity, you just save and save and save and buy for yourself. He's like, yeah, that's not going to last. 
So the serving and the volunteering and everything you do when your heart wasn't right, when you, when you forgave with your mouth but not with your heart, when you showed up in places just to make other people feel like they were less than you, all that stuff, he says, listen, it's going to look like you were serving me, but I'm going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. And if you really were serving me, if you really were coming in this place on the weekend, not to check church off as a list, but because you want to be in the house of God, you want to see how you can minister, bear somebody else's burdens, worship the Lord, serve the Lord. He says, when I set my refiner's fire to it, it will endure. And that's what you're going to get credit for. So at the marriage supper, everybody is in eternity, but everybody is not looking the same. He's saying, this is the feast, but there's also going to be evidence of your reward. It was granted fine linens for her, but the linens were the righteous deeds of the saints. And in verse 9, the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Y'all, that's what blessing is. We, we have gotten it twisted on what a blessing is. The blessing, listen, anything on this earth that's not going with you to eternity, which is nothing but your soul, that is not the blessing. The blessing is being at the table of the marriage supper. So when you see this, it should create an urgency in us. For those of us who have already chosen Jesus, it ought to create some overwhelming gratitude. Because at, at this table, y'all, when he says the bride, the church is Christ's bride, that's the believer. That's why Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. So he's not talking about church attenders. He's not talking about church leaders or church staff. He doesn't care if you third generation pastor's kid and your great grand. That doesn't matter. If you in church but not in Christ, you're not going to be at this meal. This is for people who have said yes to the gospel of Jesus. Not try to pick and choose parts of Christianity that work for you and mix it with other religions that work for you. That's not what this is. This is where a line will be drawn. And there's only going to be certain people at this table. But it will not be because we did not have chances. Romans 1 says, God has revealed himself, his divine attributes, his divine nature. We've all had chances. All of us know when we have put off the call that Jesus is pulling on our heart. But he's saying when we get here, it's only the people who have said yes to me. And so that's why the angel concludes, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now here's our third part. This is the anticipated battle, y'all. This is 11 through 21. So they have that. The anticipated battle, 11 through 21. Ooh, are y'all ready? Okay, now, I'm going to read this to you, and I need you to understand that God is good and Jesus is gracious, but at the end of time, grace runs out. I need, I need us to understand and not be offended because God is holy and perfect and right and just, and what you're about to see is Jesus saying, mercy no more. So in verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Makes war. Remember when you got in trouble, like, your mom would always want to know who started it? Who, who? Jesus like, I started it. I, I am making war. Ephesians 6 we have all this armor that God is telling us to put on, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and all these things. He says, when you get armored up, I just want you to stand. Just resist. But when he comes back, he says, not going to be any standing and resisting. I'm going to start the war. He is starting the campaign at Armageddon. 
And in verse 12, it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. It's not the marriage supper. Same God, different guests. He says, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those to receive the mark. So the beast and the false prophet who had tried to get everybody to get the mark of the beast, praise God for the tribulation saints who had survived that. They had to live underground on the black market, all kinds of things to not take that mark. So Jesus is now saying, I allowed you a, a time of deception, and now it's time to pay up. So the beast and the prophet now says those two were thrown alive. Y'all say alive. Into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. <laughs> Listen, y'all. This is not like white flowing robe, pantine blowout, highlights, sun-kissed Jesus, manicured nails with a, with a purple scarf like, no, that's not what's happening. This is the king of glory. When Psalm 24 says, who is this king? He's the king of glory. The Lord God strong and mighty. The Lord God mighty in battle. This is a warrior king. It says his eyes are like flames of fire. It will be impossible to miss his gaze. 2 Thessalonians speaks to it. It says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord, that the time is coming. It says he has many diadems, many crowns, not just one crown, but he has many crowns. Psalm 24 that says, who is the king of glory? This is the picture that we see. He's clothed in a robe. Y'all, it's dipped in blood. It's not dipped in his blood. This is not the slain lamb on the cross who died for you. This is the risen savior. And so the blood on his robe is the, is the blood of his enemies. He's coming because the grace has come to an end, y'all. Now, here is the challenge with loving Jesus. His grace is so good that we forget that it is the buffer between us and the wrath of God. His grace is so good. We will walk around here thinking that God really is just not that, that he doesn't have any wrath anymore. I'm not talking about an angry God. I'm talking about a holy God who acts against anything that's not holy. And so Jesus and his grace, what we have because of the cross, it will deceive us into thinking that God's wrath has been dismissed. It has not. It has just been put into the time where it's going to be revealed in full perfection. 
Jesus in this culture, he is our homie and our sidekick and our friend. And I want to talk to Jesus when I'm having a hard time, but I don't want Jesus to tell me what to do. And, and I want to love the way I want to love. And I take a little bit of what Jesus says, but I'm going to mix it with the other parts that make sense to me. And we know when we've had the Lord pulling on our hearts and we're like, not yet, God. Just one more year, one more. Let me get this done, then I'm going to say yes to you. We got to get through all of our stuff before we say yes to God. But you don't know if your yes is going to come before Jesus comes back. So the time is now. He's saying, when I come back, I'm going to make war. He has a sharp sword. It represents the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Isaiah 4, remember now, Revelation, even though it gets heavy with graphics and imagery, graphic imagery, every chapter in Revelation speaks to something that's already been revealed in Scripture. Like, we have been talking about the second coming since I don't know when. This is the king of glory, y'all. So Isaiah says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That's what this image is. It's the sword coming out of God's mouth. Second Thessalonians says, the breath of his mouth will bring nothing by the appearance of his coming. He will kill with the breath of his mouth. Jesus is standing right there like, with the sword, and nations just like, gone. Like, he's not putting forth any effort, any energy. But this is the thing. He's saying, my grace and my mercy, they come to an end. And remember, it says here that he had trodden the, the winepress. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 63. It says, he trods the winepress alone. For the people, no one was with him. He says, I, in my anger, trample them with my wrath, and their, lap, and the, with my wrath and their life blood is spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. That's how we know that in Revelation, he's standing with this robe that's dipped in blood. So, y'all, let me tell you what's happening. Jesus comes in on a white horse. He got the robe on, but it's drenched in blood. It's like the enemies that he has conquered, all the kings, everybody. Because, look, the birds, he says, birds, y'all come eat the flesh of these kings, these captains, these mighty men. Everybody who promoted themselves, everybody who thought they were going to gain some kind of position outside of me, it's not going to last. Everybody who spent all your whole life putting me on the sidelines and trying to make yourself the God of your own life, you're going to be devoured. The Ma Matthew and the Gospels and Scripture tell us over and over again that everybody that was an enemy of God will fall. And it's not a kind death. He's saying, I don't owe you any kindness because I'm the righteous judge. And if I could count how many chances I've given you to say yes to me, we could not count them all. Even those of us who have already said yes to Jesus know we didn't say yes on the first time. We know how often we put God off thinking, oh, he's just going to forgive us. God is gracious. God is love. He is love, but his love is righteous and it's just. So Jesus, y'all, is on this horse. He says he's got the armies behind him because John's like, I see the armies. Now, if you are a Christian and you get caught up in the rapture and you go to heaven, if you've chosen Jesus, chosen Jesus today, you in the army. Amen. That's the winning side. Okay, so I'm standing back here. Jesus, is it, you know when you were growing up and you had like that one cousin or that big brother or sister that would like fight for you? You were in the back like, what? Say it to my, say it to his face. <laughs> That's how I am. I'm like, say it to, what you say, Satan? Say it to Jesus. I bet you won't. Right. So I'm back here. We back here on the winning side. The Bible says that Jesus says, I'm the one, even though people were with me, I made war. Jesus is like, I don't even need your help. You just back here for show just because I'm, I'm letting you be a part of this since you said yes to me on earth. But Jesus by himself is fighting every army of the enemy. He don't even get off the horse. He's just on the horse and the sword is like, whew, flames, everybody done. And he's like, all right, 
Next, what else are we doing today? Because he's coming in like this warrior king. It says he's got a name on him that we don't even know. Because even as much as he's revealed, he said, you can't know everything about me. I got names that you could not even handle in your human brain. So, but what you can know is on my thigh is king of kings and lord of lords, just in case anybody was wondering. And so anybody that tries to call themselves a king or a lord in this earth, the vultures will take care of it. And at the end of time, Jesus says, you will know who the victor is. This is not the lamb slain who did not open his mouth when he was led to slaughter. This is the one who has a sword coming out of his mouth, creating justice that has been long overdue. Y'all, we're not turning cheeks anymore. This is not that Jesus. Turning cheeks and grace upon grace. It's done. There's going to come a time where no more cheeks will be turned. No more silence. No more slain lamb, a risen savior, a warrior king coming in to claim back what is his, to reign in righteousness, to show you that whatever victory you thought you had outside of him was false and fake and temporary and it will burn with the fire. He is going to make clear that victory, championship is only in me. He will triumph in the end. He's just got the armies behind him and it is a scene to behold. And he even gives the devil a chance to try to attempt to fight back. And he shuts it down. Cast them into the lake of fire. And those who remain were taken out with the sword, y'all. So we have this battle that John is showing us in chapter 19. And that turns a corner. Everything that we're reading about and hearing, y'all, do y'all know it's been predicted forever? Like, it's not new. The second coming has been an assurance for the saints since the beginning of time. Enoch, the Bible says in Jude chapter 1, it was also about these, these end times, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he was seven generations from Adam. The earth wasn't even that old. And Enoch was talking about the future. He says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness. This is Enoch. This is before the flood, before Jesus, before Joseph. Before he was like, I already know that the Lord has shown me that behold, he's going to come back and judge in perfection. And everybody ungodly is going to have to pay. Look how much time we've had. Look how much time we've had to say yes to God, to say yes to the Savior. Enoch talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Isaiah talks about it. And then we get to part four. Chapter 20, the first six verses, Satan is bound and Jesus reigns on earth. So we have the anticipated battle that Jesus wins and wins easily. And then Satan is bound because now we have the millennial reign. So chapter 20, John says, I saw an angel coming down, holding his hand. He had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the serpent, the devil bound him for a thousand years. Now, we believe that thousand years is a literal 1,000 years. There are different beliefs that you are welcome to look up, different beliefs on millennialism, but we believe it's a thousand years. And y'all, here's the thing. You, you have to, when you read this, you have to be asking God, what do I need to know about you, God? Because our, everything in us, even in our, our churches today, our teaching, everything in our culture is saying, let me chew up this word for you and spit it back out for you in something that requires no thought, no thinking. You can just walk away and your life can be better. But, but the word of God requires our engagement. It requires us to care, to, to be invested. If you're trying to learn something on YouTube, you can watch for 25 minutes. You can watch for 30 minutes how to fix your garage. 
You, you know, we, we learn how to build a whole house on YouTube. You learn how to do your makeup, how to put your outfit together, fix your car, change your remote. How do I fix this? Oh, let me go watch this on YouTube. And then 26 videos later, you can learn how to cook something and how to redecorate, fix your garden. We always, are, we always are interested in what can benefit us quickly. But God is saying, I have something I'm planting in you. And there's a patience that comes with planting. So when we take in this word, when we see what God has coming, we have to understand it's not just because so our lives can be better by 1 o'clock today. It's because God is showing us a picture of the end times. He's saying, I am showing you that I am a planner, that I am detailed, that I'm a promise keeper, and that ultimately I win. You ought to have an urgency about bringing other people into a saving grace of Jesus Christ. It ought to make you say, who needs to be at this marriage supper? There's not anybody you dislike enough that you would wish hell on them. Do you understand what Jesus is showing you? It's not to scare you. It's to give you an urgency to say, either I need to say yes to Jesus or I need to be bringing names before the throne, before the kingdom. Every day, God, show me how to say the word, pray the prayer to bring this person to say yes to you. We, we're trying to bring people to the marriage supper, y'all. There's no limitations on your plus one. Bring as many as you like. What a shame to know God, have seen what God can do in your life, to have the joy and peace of God, to have a church that you love or friends that you love, and everybody loves God, and you fine with it just being you going to the supper. You're like, I hope y'all find y'all's way. I found God. I'm good. He's saying this is supposed to stir up an urgency. And so we see now that Satan is bound for these thousand years. Now, the millennial kingdom, y'all, is going to be good stuff. This is what God has been talking about, the saints rule and judge with him they will remain on earth and these saints are going to be rewarded many of them were became saints during the tribulation and it says the son of man who's going to come with his angels he's going to repay each person according to what he's done there's a lot of happening but it's going to be righteousness it's going to be peace when when isaiah says then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then the lame man shall leap like a deer that's mary did you know you know, if you're in the middle of that song, Mary, did you know, the blind will see, the dead will rise. That's, that's all that is. And he's talking about the future. Joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. He's talking about the future. When God says, pray this prayer in the Father's prayer, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the millennial reign. When we say king of glory, we'll dance in your presence until you come again. Everything, you don't even realize how much the second coming is an assurance for us today. We get through this life day to day because we know a day is coming. Well, there'll be no more crying and no more disease and no more illness and no more death. Isaiah says, in that day, you will die when the Lord says so. He says, if you die at 100 in that day, it'll be considered an infant. Because now we don't have the weight of sin crushing our years. The saints will reign, they will judge, there will be righteousness on earth. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world. This is the millennial kingdom. And this is the hope that many of us have. The danger is that the enemy tries to make us create that here, right now. Jesus hadn't come back, y'all. There's still disease, there's still death, there's still sin, there's still pain, there's still brokenness, but a day is coming when it will be no more. Ezekiel 34 gives us an image. It says, trees will be restored. They'll yield fruit as they should. God will protect every sheep of his from false shepherds. It is like some 
Some teachers call it a new Eden. So what he intended for us in the garden, y'all, is going to be good again, and it's going to be right, and it's going to be perfect, and Jesus is going to reign in glory. And then in the second part, not only is Satan bound, then he's released again, because God is sovereign, we don't know why, but he gives Satan an opportunity to reign again for one more thousand years, and then the permanent banishment. So in 7 through 16, we have Satan is banished, and Jesus reigns eternal. When the thousand years is ended, I want y'all to hear this. Satan will be released from his prison, and then it says he will gather to make war. In verse 9, they marched up over the plain and tried to, and marched up over the plain, surrounded the camp, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So he let Satan out after his thousand years. Jesus has a thousand years, Satan has a thousand years, and then Satan tries to make war again. They march up toward Jesus, fire consumed. Jesus is like, don't even, don't even try it. And in verse, and in verse, uh, 10, it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. Because remember, Jesus threw the beast and the false prophet into the lake of sulfur, but the devil still remained. He was bound. And then Jesus gave him a chance to reign again. We had a chance, one more chance to choose Jesus. And then he binds him forever, y'all, into this lake of fire. And then there's this great throne of judgment. And Jesus is like, everybody that has done wrong, you're going to stand before me today. Let's talk about it. Let's get into it. There's going to be a judgment and there is going to be a victory that is guaranteed, y'all. But you don't have to work out of your own effort and your own strength to be on the winning side. Jesus has it for you. He says, the victory is mine and all I do is give it to you when you say you believe in me. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to fight for it. You receive it from him and then you live like you have it. It should change the way you live, but you don't have to fight for it, y'all. Do you know how much we are trying to create and simulate this millennial kingdom? We're trying to simulate this victory Jesus has for us by trying to create achievements. Our whole life is consumed with it. Where do we live and what do we drive and where are our kids in school and what will my engagement look like and who am I dating and how do I look and how much do I weigh and what is my career and what are the letters behind my name? What's my hustle? How am I making a name for myself? I was reading something the other day about the Oscars. Y'all familiar with the Oscars, right? Y'all know the Oscars? Yeah. Wait a minute. Oh, I was like, wait now. So the Oscars is one of the most prestigious awards that uh, a person can get. Okay. That's all right. You're going to let that make it. One of the most prestigious awards that a person in film, Hollywood, can receive. Now, with the Oscars, they have what, they're called, what is called the Big Five. Okay. Now, these come at the end of the 12-hour broadcast that is the Oscars. It's a whole revival. And so, at the end, you have best director, best picture, uh, actor or actress, and then best screenplay. Now, a person can only win four of these big five because you have to be actor or actress because the world, we haven't deteriorated that far yet. I'm sure the day is coming where somebody can win actor and actress, whatever. You know it's coming. You're the first person that won for man and female part. Okay. <laughs> Jesus, come quickly. So, <laughs> right now, a person can only win four of those. No person in the history of ever, since the Oscars started, has won all four. Some, in a very short list, have won best director, best actor. Best director, best screenplay. Some have won combinations, but nobody's won all four. There are a few pictures that you may have heard of, like Titanic and some big ones, that one that swept the category, but it wasn't an individual. It was the whole film. 
So this thing that everybody is striving for has still found itself to be unattainable. So they may have one or two, but that sweep of the big four, no one has it. But then you have Jesus step on the scene in the book of Revelation, y'all. And he says, listen, <laughs> I wrote the screenplay. Everything you see, I already knew it was about to happen. I get best screenplay. I get best director because everybody's only moving to the way that I say they can move. Even when the enemy moves, I allow it. Even when he acts up, it's by my permission. I get best screenplay. I get best director. I scouted the location. I determine when and where it's going to happen. I set the scene. I give you the costumes of the white linen and the robes according to your righteousness. I have set the whole scene. And when the credits roll, it's not going to be pages and pages of names that you got to get through. It's going to have one name. When the credits roll, it will simply say, Jesus Christ. He did it all. The Bible says he came, and he didn't need any Oscars. He got crowns. It says he came into the valley, and he has many diadems. And guess what? These are not even the crowns of righteousness that are his. It says that these are the crowns that he took from every king that he conquered. So everybody that thought they were somebody, Jesus said, I'll take that crown. I'll take that crown. You thought you earned something for yourself? I'll take that crown. Oh, I'll take that. You promoted yourself? I'll take that one too. You proud of your business? I'll take that one too. You bragging on your kids? I'll take that crown. Oh, your bank account is where you want? I'll take that crown. You think you look good? I'll take that crown. Your career is amazing? I'll take that crown. Your degree? All of it belongs to me. I'm the only one worthy of a crown. And at the end of time, there will be no victory that you can create on your own that will sustain itself. Only those found on the winning side will experience the victory of the greatest champion in all of history. He says, I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the Lord God Almighty. Salvation and power belong to me. I am just. I am righteous. I am perfect. I am true. And the prophecy of Isaiah will come to fruition. He's almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Messiah, slain lamb, warrior king. There was no one like our God. But church, that victory is not going to be for everybody. So we're going to take a few moments as we end today. These are important moments. Nothing matters except for your soul's standing in heaven. There's not a song, an applause, an attendance, a service, or an event greater than your yes to Jesus. Being found in church is not the same as being found in Christ. So maybe you need to ask yourself, do I have a relationship with Jesus? Is church something I'm just checking off? Or, or have I said yes to him? Not the idea of him. Campuses, stay with us. This time is for you too. Stay with us. We just need a few moments. We want to populate heaven. We want the table of the marriage supper to be full. There's not anybody that God would desire would perish. He wants everybody to choose him. But there are going to be churches that will still be full after that rapture because we've gotten accustomed to the behavior of Christianity without surrender to Christ. So for just a few moments, if you're in the room,
and you know you need a relationship with Jesus. This is, this is not just rededication. Like, you know you have not surrendered to him. You know he's been whispering to you, pulling on your heart. Say yes. Now is your time, and we will wait for you. If you need to say yes to Jesus, this is all that matters. It's okay that it's public. The cross is public. I'm telling you, when you come, we're going to cheer you on and celebrate you. But only the enemy wins if we gather with rooms full of people every weekend and nobody chooses Jesus.
champion. You will reign victorious, God. For those of us who've chosen you, yes, still come, still come. Father, we just pray right now for every heart that's contemplating that this would be the yes, that they would say yes, secure heaven, find themselves on the winning side of the end of ages. Father, would you stir hearts in this room, stir hearts at the campuses, stir hearts online, stir hearts at home. We want to be flooded with yes, yes to Jesus. We give you glory, Father. We just pray for every person that has said yes, that this would be the beginning of the rest of their lives, that you would ground them with community and church and, and a love for your word, change their appetites. For those of us who are redeemed, God, will you give us an urgency for those that we need to be bringing before your throne for uncomfortable conversations, to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the gospel. We thank you for your holy word. May it stir up gratitude and urgency. And God's people shouted hallelujah. We shouted hallelujah. I said, can we just stand and sing that on the way out?